I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. Scott, I don't know how comfortable I feel with this social distancing we're supposed to be doing. I feel like our interactions are a little impersonal right now. Just a little bit. I mean, I can still hear you as if everything's fine, right? Oh, well, yeah, I talk loud enough for that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So uh, on today's Opus of Triloquy, of course, uh, we're going to address this health crisis that uh, we're currently in. But in the spirit of equity, I don't want to overlook what we're doing for Women's History Month. So um, I want to shout out um, Joanne Sukumaran for this Opus of Triloquy. She uh, listens all the way over from Singapore. So shout out to our listeners from uh, East Asia. Uh, Joanne is a bassoonist and um, in her work she tries to find ways to make the bassoon sound a little different than folks may be used to when it comes to those Mozart, Hummel, concertos, even all the way up to the way the bassoon was written for in the 20th century. It's sort of that, you know, bouncy, jovial sort of sound. Sure. And um, in a recent uh, recording that uh, Joanne made called The Night Guard and she takes the bassoon and fuses it with sounds that are a little different. So at the end of this opus of Triloquy, um, uh, we're going to get to uh, share with you one of the tracks from that album. It's also called The Night Garden. You'll hear some really uh, cool bassoon playing mixed with tabla and, and other non-Western instruments. Um, so I'm excited to share that with you um, in light of Women's History Month. You know, again, an opportunity for us to really shine a light and and provide a little equity yeah. for uh, the many women uh, working in classical music. So that's coming up at the end of this opus. Um, but for right now, I want to talk a little bit about about um, what's going on um, with this coronavirus um, health scare. Um, a- as we record this, uh, folks are, uh, are being encouraged to just stay at home. No gatherings, more of 10 people um, here in the Twin Cities. All of the restaurants are closing later this evening, which has already happened in other parts of, uh, of the country. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's really unprecedented, at least for our lifetime, right? Right. What... Um when when we were talking last night, you seemed a little bit more tense than than I felt at that point. Yeah, because it's it's really just it's just getting real, and and the way that uh, folks are talking on the news is is making folks scared. And you know, while I'm never a proponent of you know just inducing panic. Um, it is very important for us to acknowledge how serious this is. And, um, you know, in, in some of the reading and watching I've been doing, I've noticed that a lot of people are um, having uh, issues, having challenges dealing with that bit of isolation. You know, yeah. work work for many people is so much more than just the paycheck. It's, you know, community. It's a sense of purpose. And all of that, you know, kind of goes out the window when you have to, you know, sit on your own and, and spend most of your time on your own. Um, but Scott, for folks like us, you know, you were working the overnight, I work the overnight on the radio. Now that sense of isolation is kind of That's nothing new. One, one that we have to get used to. So, so what would be your advice to folks who are feeling isolated these days in, in light of this health crisis? I found myself getting way deep into my hobbies mm. when I was doing the overnight shift. So uh, I was practicing guitar all the time. And uh, I'm a brewer, so I was making beers. And, you know, by the time uh, uh, I was making a joke online a few days ago, what beer should I make? By the time it's done, you should be able to come over and have sure, some of sure. it. Sure, you know? unless so, the beer itself is coronavirus 
Well, there, <laughs> we shouldn't that, joke. <laughs> that was a that was a title that was toyed with, a name, the uh, Corona clone. But I don't think I'm going to go that direction. But but I guess the point is to really dig into those hobbies, find maybe something new to, right. to get into. Um, yeah, a lot of people were saying, hey, if you've got a Kindle, why don't you download a new author that you've never touched before or that book that you've always meant to read? Why don't yep. you get that? But, you know, the thing is for you and I with no children, you know, that's one component that's that we don't have to deal with. You know, how are we going to keep them engaged? How are we going to deal with them over the, the time that they're home? Um, and it didn't land to me the way that it would affect other people until I started hearing people talk about, I have been, you know, I've, I've got a PhD study that I was supposed to present at this big panel. That's gone. Um, and the people who work in the service industry, this is going to be uh, decimating to them. A friend of mine up in Seattle says he doesn't know if the bar he works at is going to survive the shutdown. Yeah, it, it's, it's impacting so many, especially musicians. You yeah, know. Talk, talk a little bit about what the, the freelance lifestyle is like. You know, and Scott, it's not just the freelance lifestyle. You know, musicians by and large, freelance and those who are members of many of the nation's orchestras work um, on uh, what, what we call per service. So, for, for this rehearsal, for the next rehearsal, for this performance, you are you are paid for that. And if you and if you don't execute those services, you don't get that money. Mm. So many of the uh, country's big um, institutions. So, you know, we're talking about the New York Philharmonic, Los Angeles Phil, uh, Minnesota Orchestra, all, all of Detroit, all of these big orchestras. You know, they're set up with with sick leave and 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 health care packages and all this sort of stuff. But when you get down to the smaller organizations, including um, the one that I came here from, the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra, most of those musicians are paid by the service. Mm. And if they don't get to execute those services, they don't get that pay. Now, when we talk about um, freelance work, you know, that is all the way just show up to this gig and get the check. With the with the gigs being canceled, the checks are being canceled. And I, I wow. cringe at the the fact that so many of my dear friends are going to have a lot of problems paying their rent on the first because they just are not getting that money. You know, I'll shout out Jessica Majunkins, who was on a, a previous opus of Triloquy. She um, is on her uh, social media really um, driving the point that there are tens of thousands of dollars being lost. I, I think the last time I uh, checked out her social media, she said she was already about $11,000 in the hole, you know, and, oh and, and living in a place like New York City, that is that that's detrimental. So um, what what I decided to do here today was to offer you listening um, the opportunity to do what you can to support these musicians who are having a hard time right now. There's someone um, named Mary Prescott. If, if you're on Facebook, if you'll just look up Mary Prescott, she has um, an artist relief tree art. Um, the goal is $250,000. Right now, uh, as we're taping this, um, they're a little over $141,000. So a big thank you to everyone who has contributed uh, to that effort. Again, this money is helping all of the musicians who are just are are uh, are, are are being decimated financially by this health crisis. So by contributing to that, you are offering ways to help these musicians and these artists to pay their rent, get something to eat. You know, just 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 maintain their um, their livelihood. I also wanted to um, shout out um, Ray Hare. So. Um, 
a quick side note, you know, most musicians in the country are members of the American Federation of Musicians. That's that's the American right. and Canadian uh, Musicians Union. So I still get um, many of those um, emails. And I'm just going to quickly uh, read uh, the latest email from the AFM um, in response to this. It says, as you are aware, many musicians are currently out of work as a result of the response to the coronavirus. This pandemic has pushed the entire entertainment industry into an unprecedented crisis. We must let our elected officials in Washington, D.C. know that we need help. Contact your legislators and tell them to protect entertainment workers during this pandemic. And I won't go into the rest of the email, but I think uh, the point is being made there. You know, if you're looking for another way to to help all of the musicians and all the artists being impacted um, by this tragedy, contact your local officials so that we can push Washington to make sure that uh, that they're doing they what they can um, to to support these folks. It's really important. I'm, I'm grateful. I'll just go ahead and say, Scott, I'm grateful to be in the position right now to not have to worry about that. But, sure. with, but with that being said, you know, it's my responsibility to make sure I am thinking about those who do have to worry about that. So, again, um, if you're on Facebook, please look up Mary Prescott and contribute to um, her fund. Um, and then um, also make sure that uh, you're reaching out to your local legislators um, to make sure uh, that uh, they're doing their part. Um, to support artists. So this is probably going to have impact in ways that we really haven't unprecedented, you know, unprecedented. The reach isn't going to be fully known until we hit it or pass it. Right. Um, and, and I also feel like I uh, should make sure I say, you know, really pay attention to what they're saying on the news as far as this social distancing. You know, stay at home. If you do not have to go to work, to the store, whatever, stay at home. Scott, you know, we're we're on the radio still, so we're doing what we can here at American Public Media to make sure that we're being protected. But yeah. um, but but please make sure you're paying attention um, to, to those efforts. So um, with folks, you know, stuck at home and, and in court quarantine um, as we kind of touched on earlier, folks are looking for ways to, you know, fill that time and, yeah. a, and a way that you can fill that time and support um, your uh, your local institutions is seeing if your orchestra or a nearby orchestra has um, an online uh, video uh, catalog of performances. Sure. You know, the, those clicks go a long way during um, rough times like this. And, um, and today's interview uh, feature is with a woman named Blair Tyndall. She wrote a book called uh, Mozart in the Jungle. Mm-hmm. It uh, became an Amazon feature. And uh, I would really encourage you, if you haven't uh, checked out that book, to see if you can get it on your Kindle, your iPad, or whatever. And then uh, go check out the show um, on Amazon. Uh, she she really offers an interesting look at the uh, realness, the trillness, I guess we can say. <laughs> the inner workings. Yeah, of, of musicians. Uh, she's an oboist uh, from North Carolina who moved to um, New York City um, to play, uh, to freelance and to play with the uh, New York Philharmonic. Some of the really interesting things that she goes into is the fact that there were no full-time orchestras until the 60s, you know, and the yeah. New York Philharmonic yeah. uh, was one of the first. She also goes into um, other historical things about the industry, including um, why, um, as a nation, we began to uh, become interested in the arts. And um, as as you hear her tell her story, I think you'll also find uh, why she's a really significant figure for 
for Women's History Month as far as, you know, um, the way she had to deal with sexism um, in the industry, how she um, had to deal with sexual abuse and sexual assault um, with her teachers. And um, I just want to, before we get into the interview, I want to underscore the fact that, you know, she leaves out a lot of names. She doesn't say a lot of things, leaves things a little vague. Um, So take that as your opportunity to um, to go read the book. You know, I hope this sparks your curiosity um, to go learn about this most important woman um, in classical music. So uh, how how about we uh, jump right into this interview um, between myself, Scott and Blair. Blair, what a pleasure to have you here on Triloquy. Thank you for joining us. I'm so flattered you asked. I'm I'm sure, you know, your life is, you know, is only getting crazier and crazier, but uh, (laughs) hopefully things for you are are manageable over there on the West Coast. Oh, it's great. It's very different from my life as a full-time New York musician. And I'm enjoying it very much. Yeah, and and I'm sure you know uh, when you when you landed uh, in New York and 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 we're we're getting your life started. This wasn't necessarily the life that you saw for yourself. I mean, are are you happy with where things have have gone? Would you change anything if you could? I really wouldn't. And this is kind of the best case scenario. I was very excited when the Coppola family picked up the rights to the book and made it into a TV show. And it really did a lot for classical music, I think. Oh, absolutely, to to say the very least. Writing a book seems like such an enormous task. Did did you have help as far as figuring out the publishing or, 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 or any of that stuff? Well, first of all, I'm from a family that's very involved in publishing. My father was a professor who wrote eight or nine books, And so I I was familiar with the New York publishing world. I quit my Broadway show to go to Stanford and get a degree in journalism. Mm. So uh, one of my professors sort of guided me there. I wrote a book proposal, submitted it to his agent who accepted it, and then we sold the book off the book proposal. So you then get a book deal and have a little money up front and you have a year to write it. But for people who uh, may not have uh, read the book or seen the show or, or somehow have have just been out of the loop when it comes to Mozart in the Jungle, how, how would you how would you describe that work of art? How would you ex- d- describe the book? Well, I'm so flattered you call it a work of art. <laughs> oh well, it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> but it was meant to describe the rise of culture in late 20th century America, and I knew that was a book that was going to be a snooze fest. So I realized my life, I was born in 1960. It's unfortunately all over the internet. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Can't hide that in Hollywood even. Um, I realized my life paralleled that story. So people of my age going into conservatory when they were 18 in the mid to late 70s were the first people in America who could really make a living off of classical music. There was no full-time orchestra in the United States until 1964. Mm. And that's and that's so. Uh, it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around that. You know, you you talk about uh, in the book and and here as a New York uh, musician, and now in the city of New York, that's where people, or at least one of the places where people go to to make their dreams come true. But you know, as you've said, even in the earlier days, uh, New York City wasn't even home to one of these full-time ensembles. Right. The first orchestra to go full-time was the New York Philharmonic in 1964. 
So I think a lot of people who are used to this dialogue we see in arts criticism of the arts are in decline don't realize they were only possible possible to be a full-time living in the in my lifetime. So there were some reasons that are detailed in the book of how that came about, but I think everything is kind of balancing out and equalizing now. Take us all the way back. Talk talk to us about your entry into um, music. Well, well, first of all, what was oboe your first instrument, or was there a conduit there? Oh no, piano. My parents. Uh, I'm from the South. I'm from North Carolina. Yay, Tar Heels. And they both. <laughs> yes, yay. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, both played the piano as amateurs. So we had a kind of rinky-dink piano at home. And they were the first in my family to go to college, and they were very interested in getting us interested in classical music. So my brother and I ended up taking piano lessons from the age of four or five. And then we, my father was a professor. We had a Fulbright to Austria, Vienna, oh, wow. for a year when I was in the second grade. And I just kind of fell in love with it. At that time, it was very foreign we even, this was so long ago, we took a ship from uh, New York to Genoa, got off, took a train to Vienna. So it seemed like it was so foreign and something that just jumped out of the pages of National Geographic. So I remember the first, we had a friend on the ship who is somebody you will, whose name you'll recognize, uh, the soprano Arlene Auger. She had a fabulous voice. Yeah. So she had a Fulbright as well. And she only knew two opera arias at the time (laughs) and had somehow gotten this Fulbright. So we all came together at these embassy events and things. I was only seven at the time. And she got called in to replace the Queen of the Night at the Vienna Staatsoper. And I went from this Christmas party of seeing her in just, you know, ordinary civilian clothing to seeing her sweep out on the stage at the Vienna State Opera in this fantastic costume and she opened her mouth and it was just incredible Mm. and I was sold Mm. (laughs) and then the oboe came sometime later I suppose yes so so we got back to North Carolina I was in the sixth grade and we didn't have much of a music education program there was a band in the elementary school so they brought all the sixth graders into the room and the band store came over with various instruments, and they went down the list of students in alphabetical order. I was third from the end, so guess what was left? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) There was a bassoon, too, I'll have you know. Well, that was a little challenging for a small girl on a bike. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) It it was challenging for a a young boy on his two feet, I'll I'll have you know as well. But But I know... um, you like to hear about real stories, and you have obviously some interest in how various races approach the arts in America. And I want to stress, it's hard for people younger than I am to understand this, but I was in one of the very first classes in Chapel Hill that was racially integrated. So our town consisted of Chapel Hill. The actual other side of the tracks was Carborough, where there had been a cotton mill. Mm. So it was quite racially divided. So they brought all these kids, well-meaning, into a room. And I had classmates who lived in 
houses with no floors, dirt floors, and no plumbing. These kids could in no way rent a band instrument, even if they were interested. So it was, they were just excluded from the get-go. My family was stationed, actually, I was born in Goldsboro, because my family mm-hmm. was stationed at, I believe it's Seymour Johnson Air Base there. Isn't that the name of the air base out there? I don't know. There's there's several in North Carolina. But my father talked about that time as uh, racial tensions were uh, easily felt out in, you know, just walking around day to day. And I would like to know if uh, you could talk a little bit about that privilege, because you talk about a, a little black boy. You describe a little black boy in your book. I was wondering if you could uh, tell that story. Well, he was a this is the his name is Johnny Edwards, mm. and actually he was quite a handsome, tall, strapping boy. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, I pictured something else as I was reading, but okay. <laughs> no, no, and very friendly, but you know he was really limited in what he could do. I think I remember reading that, um, you know, as his as his name was called, um, you know, he tried the trumpet and actually it seemed to have a, a a natural affinity for it. But, you know, as you've mentioned, just, you know, unable to to cross that bridge as far as renting the instrument and really taking part in the music program. That was it. And I have to say there were some schools around like my oboe teacher's school was in Lenore, North Carolina. Somebody had endowed that uh, middle school with a grant so that they could buy band instruments that would be lent to those kids for free. So in some cases, there was a chance. But in my school, it wasn't. we didn't have a string program either, so there were almost no string programs in town. Is is that you know that 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 foundation um, of not just your uh, oboe playing but you know your life your adolescence that that racial tension was that something that you felt when you moved when you grew up and you moved on to New York what was was that feeling still sort of there or or, or was it different for you? Well, first of all, my father was a professor of Black history and one of the very first ones, and people always are like. What are you talking about? <laughs> but remember, when he got his PhD in 1951, it was very difficult for a black person aspiring to even an undergraduate degree to find a, a college where they could be admitted, much wow. less to afford it. So um, my parents were very committed to not uh, cooperating with any institution that had segregation. So we did not belong to the country club. I did not go to a private school. And I didn't really, Chapel Hill is extremely liberal. So I was aware of all of this, but it wasn't like it was in more rural parts of the South. Mm. I remember, um, you know, opening your book for the first time, and 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 I actually started reading your book in a rehearsal. Uh, uh, you know, I, maybe I was on contrabassoon for something, and and I had fifteen minutes to spare, and I didn't want to leave stage. And um, I, I I remember your describing that first, um, you know, that first car ride in New York, and it reminded it, it didn't seem familiar to me at all but would you mind telling that uh that story that part of the book your your entry into new york oh yes that was the opening of the book there was a famous uh drug den across from where i went to music conservatory that was run by somebody whose name i will not share with you oh that's too <laughs> bad he went on <laughs> we might be he went looking. on to have a <laughs> a very good career as a band director oh wow um, okay but it was a time in New York 
in you know the very early 80s where uh, cocaine was quite popular, uh, the recording industry with what we're doing now on computers with microphones remotely didn't exist yet. Right. So people were actually making quite a bit of money recording jingles and film soundtracks. So there's a lot of money going around. And we're this isolated little world, and everybody thinks we're prim and proper Puritans, so nobody's looking in or checking on us. So the drug culture during those years in the 80s was amazing. I mean, it was I was not a drug user ever, but it was uh, quite popular. <laughs> was, was, was that something that you were expecting? Go ahead. I mean, was, was that a shock to you? I, I know it's a shock to many people to read that, you know, classical musicians in the 80s were, were you know, taking part in nefarious activities like that. Nefarious. That cracks me up. I, I mean, why would we be different from anyone else? Right. <laughs> and we were getting away with murder because nobody suspected us. Um, but I had also, remember, gone to boarding school from the age of 15 at mm. the North Carolina School of the Arts, which is also a college with some lax rules back then because it was the very beginning of the school. They haven't figured it out yet. Now they have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we were exposed to everything and just I, – I don't particularly regret it, but uh, somebody should have been keeping an eye on us. <laughs> and Scott, I know that you know you talk about uh, dealing with people who have perceptions about being a classical radio host, yeah. and, and how we're we're all buttoned up, and how at the end of the, end of the day we're like everyone else. Sure, yeah, that happens all the time. Particularly being a bachelor in the dating world, if someone he- if a woman hears that I'm a classical oh, music, yeah, if, <laughs> if they hear that I'm a classical music host, all of a sudden the whole demeanor changes. The whole uh, uh, direction of the conversation changes. And yeah, I, what would you say to the person that goes, oh my goodness, there's drug use in classical music? What? There's promiscuity? It could be worse. You could play the bassoon too. Exactly. <laughs> and use drugs. <laughs> um, no, I just, you know, I got that a lot. And, you know, people would say the subtitle of my book was Sex, Drugs, and Classical Music. What? And I just say, why would we be different from anybody else? And my other stock phrase became, where do you think little musicians come from? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we do have sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, and, and I mentioned, you know, cracking open your book for the first time years ago on the stage with the Detroit Symphony. Um, one of the musicians on stage, who I suppose I will not name either, um, you know, said, oh, you're reading that? Well, it seems like if she had just practiced more, um, it all would have turned out fine. I, I'm sure that's a lot of the energy that you got after writing this book as well. Well, that always amused me because I, I kept hearing that and I'm like, okay, I didn't think the New York Philharmonic was the bottom of the barrel. Right, right. I was, you know, worked on Broadway and made a very good living for 15 years, did a, you know, one of major international competition. I'm obviously a good oboe player. Right. There are just very few options. And also, uh, playing an instrument is very different from the more creative aspects of music or otherwise being in the arts, as you two are. Uh, Things like composing and conducting are much more creative instead of just recreating somebody else's music over and over again. I mean, I love... Beethoven's seventh, but 
it took years before I thought I'd scream if I had to play it again. Sure. <laughs> Us too, <laughs> in a different way, a different kind of play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I actually went through aptitude testing when I was 35. Okay. Uh, with this wonderful firm called the Johnson O'Connor Human Engineering Laboratory, which sounds scary. <laughs> but they uh, test your native um, abilities. And I turned out, yes, to have musical talent, but also some other things indicated that I would be happier doing something that was much more around interacting with people and also uh, used my creative sense a little more. So they suggested teaching the creative music things that I just mentioned, uh, journalism, which I ended up doing, Mm -hmm. and uh, marketing or PR. I wanted to go back to school and journalism is only one or two years for a graduate degree. So I embarked on uh, getting some college credits going so that I could do okay on the graduate record admission test. Uh, so I went back to Columbia. I was playing Miss Saigon at the time, so I had a very good income to pay for the tuition and got to the point where I did okay. So I applied to journalism schools and, much to my surprise, got in almost everywhere, and I got a free ride at Stanford, um, which turned out to be a really good experience and great mentorship there. Yeah, Stanford is, is no institution to sleep on, surely. <laughs> no, no, I couldn't believe, I mean, that story of, of, of discovering how I was accepted was a little mind-boggling. I think at the time, I had switched from Miss Saigon to Les Mis, which is a, a good thing because it's an even better paying show because okay. there was uh, overtime. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, and I had applied to these schools. So I got the thin, obvious rejection envelope from Stanford, and I just threw it out without reading it. And I came back from the show at midnight. And I thought, oh, let's just see what it says. And I opened it up, and it said, you're in. You have a full scholarship. Jeez, you almost threw that out. <laughs> so I, I called my parents at midnight and just said, I'm going to read this to you and just woke them up. And <laughs> huh. um, so it, it ended up, I had to quit the show to go. I could have gone to Columbia, but I wanted to make a clean break and sure. see what else I could do. It makes me think about how many, I wonder what is the number of acceptance letters that are thrown away every year because of the assumptions of <laughs> what's inside of that envelope. That's That's funny to me. Well, somebody from the faculty who is not with us anymore, so I can uh, say this freely, uh, did drink quite a bit. And he was supposed to be the person to call me. They were all supposed to call the acceptees. He forgot. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. But, you know, every life is just a comedy of errors anyway. Mm. Well, you know, speaking of <laughs> speaking of faculty, you know, one of the standout things um, about your book is um, the teacher, your teacher that you name and um, who, who's very hallowed, you know, in, in the world of oboe and classical music, who you very outwardly, you know, accused of some inappropriate behavior. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, sure. Yeah, that was quite a story. First of all, the way I described him in the book was that he was a real champion of mine, and he did use me as the first call sub in the New York Philharmonic, which I very much appreciated. So he had been my teacher in high school. He got the job at the New York Philharmonic, so I followed him there 
because I really didn't, at this point, I didn't know what to do. Uh, we hadn't really had any academics to speak of at the School of the Arts. Mm-hmm. And I, it's like I'm 18, now what do I do? Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, so uh, he just, my problems with him were that he was a little too hands-on <laughs> in the lessons, although I could handle that. He made inappropriate statements about uh, recent female additions to the New York Philharmonic who were just a couple of years older than I was. And he, my lesson was at 1 o'clock on Thursdays, and he never showed up till 3.30 or 4, so most of us didn't get a lesson most weeks. Um, so I, I just put that in the book. I put my appreciation for his help in the book. He then wrote... <laughs> I was already writing for the New York Times as a freelancer. He wrote this note to the arts editors at the New York Times thinking he was going to get me fired, and it ended up just being this great, hilarious lunch for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) He also published it on my Amazon page, so you can read it if you want. Oh, we'll we'll have to put a link to that in the description of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, some of the Amazon comments were fairly entertaining and at the beginning you can see the puritanical stuff like i'll never go to another classical music concert again (laughs) and then people started saying hey this really describes parts of my life as a musician i have to say it encourages me to hear um you know, you're talk you're talking about this in such a lighthearted way because you know after reading the book and just understanding what uh, some of the response, some of the backlash was to it, I don't I, I don't know if I could have I don't know if I would have been able to have a smile on my face after after reading some of those things. It's hmm. been 15 years. It was really tough, and the the thing you had mentioned something in your email to me about uh, people's comments that can be subjective about either your musicianship or your writing. And I certainly got a lot of people, anybody who was in New York when I was there knows all of this is true. I did not make one thing up. But a lot of people from around the country may have had different kinds of experiences or not been full-time musicians or not even been aiming at that. And people like that can say, oh, I heard she was a horrible player. Obviously I'm not. I mean, look at my credentials and somebody who was, uh, very, actually from Minnesota, uh, Robert Levine, a uh, great violist. He kind of came to bat for me when people were trashing me online and said, well, I, I don't know her, but I went to her recordings and listened, and she sounds like quite a good oboe player. So I appreciated that sort of open-mindedness. Yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, a few weeks ago, one of Robert's uh, colleagues, uh, his name, he's a violist named Sam Bergman. We had him on the podcast and we kind of go, uh, we kind of went in depth about the audition uh, process in, in classical music. And I have to say the story from your book that stuck with me the most was the story you tell about preparing for an audition with someone and that person not telling you that you were uh, missing a particular note in one of your excerpts um, and, and you're not advancing and having a successful audition um, because of that. I kind of want to learn more about that situation. Oh, well, that's a, we'll come back to Sam Bergman in a minute, but okay. Oh, okay. (laughs) But no, I like him. No, it's good. It's all good. Um, But uh, I was on tour with Orpheus. The other oboe player and I were in adjacent rooms and we were both going directly from the tour 
in Florida to the Cincinnati Symphony Audition. Mm. So I was playing Tuileries, that very fast, oh, yeah, from pictures. technical. Yeah. Yes. And I was only 21, I think. And I was playing one wrong note. I am not sure if he noticed, because he was probably concentrating on his own uh, practice. But we were playing the same excerpts in adjacent rooms for hours on end. Mm. And I got there, and they to the audition. I played the audition. And from behind, these are screened auditions. There's a screen between you and the judges. They asked me to play it again. And then they said twice more, look at it carefully, play it again. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I came out into the room where it's like a stew of people about to audition. And I played it for somebody and he said, it's an F sharp. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So Mm. I don't know if he was being malicious. Just knowing this person, it's possible that, oh, you know, you hear the old stories about razor blades between the piano keys at Juilliard, but, sure. which I don't think are true. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the showgirls throwing out marbles but, and, yeah, all, all of that stuff. But the, this ties into that, too, because I, I was a consultant on the TV Mozart in the Jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the producers, directors called me and asked me, what is the meanest thing an oboe teacher could do to your to a student? And they came up with something way more diabolical than I could have invented. So mm. my hat's off to them. They had <laughs> the person who plays me, uh, High Lie, Lola Kirk, being laced up into this excruciating corset and having to stick her hands in ice water. All I could think of was that F sharp. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm sure, and I'm sure you've never missed that F sharp again, right? <laughs> no, I, I think I could play it from memory right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, what this is making me think of, you know, is that audition process. I mean, obviously, you are so much better. You are so, so much more of a phenomenal musician than that one note, than that one F sharp. I mean, having spent so much time, you know, watching classical, the profession of classical music evolve, do you think it's time for us to change the way we approach auditions, the way we do auditions? Well, we did that. Uh, you know, back in the day when women and minorities were discriminated against. Oh, that's true. And, I'm not forgetting. I'm forgetting about that. Yeah. See, in my time, when I first started subbing in the New York Philharmonic, there were almost no women. And now it's between half and a third female. Um, so it was a, a real barrier. On the other hand, it uh there was the old method of that I sort of went through of your teacher kind of training you and giving you a chance to show yourself in the orchestra. Uh, so that's lost. And I've been on both sides of the audition screen. So the thing is, all you have to go on is, is it perfect? Mm, yeah, <laughs> that, that's right. So I think you're right. It does have to change, but I don't have any bright ideas for how to do it. I wonder if there are uh, stories um, from your book, and I, and I definitely want to get on into the TV side, the TV adaptation, but I'm, I'm wondering if there are stories that you decided not to include in the book or that you thought maybe were a little too scandalous for, for, for it. I got several thank you notes. P- people thanking you for not including? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, wow. 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 Well, my, my intent was not to trash anyone. It was actually the opposite to try to show how these people work so hard and are underpaid and not really appreciated as they should be. 
And when the book first came out, a lot of people just assumed it was a tell-all, which it really is not. I was trying to do the opposite. Um, so a lot of people haven't read it and had opinions about it. But after a couple of years, more people read it and liked it. The TV show provided at least 800 jobs for musicians and Fantastic. many other people, too. Yeah. So, so there's live playing, and, and, and I'll go ahead and admit, you know, I'm always <clears throat> leery about TV or movie adaptations of books that I really enjoyed, so I, I tried to stay away from the show, but, but it, it sounds like you stand behind the, this TV adaptation. Stand behind? I love every last thing about it. Oh, great. It's incredible. You and, must watch it. It's really fun. And, and, there's, and you say there's, there's music performed on set by, by actual classical musicians? Yes, so there there were they used two amateur orchestras on screen and these are people of my caliber who would have if they were my age back in the 80s been able to make a full-time living but they're piecing things together now. But the um musicians union came up with uh even if they're not members of the union they are paid on a contract for the uh day rate. Mm. So they're treated well. Everybody seemed to have fun they love their hair and makeup and oh, I'm sure they enjoy making part. the music uh you know it was and i i played i fake played fourth horn in an episode oh, <laughs> nice. you know uh, and i'm in an episode i they gave me a little part so i could join the screen actors guild you know the i love the little cameos I, um i did not read the book i watched the series first and I love how they snuck in Gustavo in there with this great, oh, that was hilarious. with this great little joke of you know they they're they're in L.A. No, yeah, they said, would you, would you, <clears throat> Rodrigo, would you come out here to L.A.? This is Gustavo saying mm -hmm. this to the character Rodrigo, the conductor. Would you come out to L.A. because we hate our conductor? Um, <laughs> he he had lived that. Oh, did he? That was fantastic. Yes. Um, and I was curious if. Uh, could you tell who the character of Rodrigo was based on? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the whole show was dependent on getting Gael Garcia Bernal to sign on as Rodrigo. <laughs> I mean, he was the thing that that made it get picked up. Yeah, and he's a phenomenal actor. I, I first saw him in a in a movie called E2 Mama Tambien, you know, many mm. years ago. And, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. I wonder what that that moment was when you got the call or, or or the email that you know your book was picked up and and that you know more people would would get to 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 see your story. Oh well, this was not accidental. Um, so when I got the the book deal, I went off to the McDowell Colony and U Cross in Wyoming and a couple of other artist colonies with a whole sheave of books on screenwriting. So I learned all about the three-act structure and thought I have almost a snowball's chance in Hades not of making this a saleable book. So I might as well try to make it attractive to Hollywood. So I wrote the book in a three-act structure hmm. that I learned from just reading these books. And um, I moved to L.A., the day the book was published because I seemed like a good time to get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> um, and uh, five days after I got here, uh, I got a call from my agent's sub-agent. So uh, it's not worth going into, but anyway, she said the Coppola family wants to option this, the Coppolas of the Godfather. Wow. So they had sent out the uh, nephew, Jason Schwartzman, 
as one of his very first things to do business-wise to option. So they picked it up, and it just kind of sat there for a long time, which is how this works Mm -hmm. generally. A lot of people option a lot of things and never do anything about it. And then all of a sudden, we got an HBO deal. So this is like seven or eight years this has been sitting there, and I'm getting a few thousand dollars a year, like $6,000 a year, which is nice. Yeah. And they are the only people who made an offer. They uh, know classical music because one of their relatives is Anton Coppola, the famous composer and conductor and oboist. And so HBO picked it up, and things were barreling ahead. And then uh, Girls with Lena Dunham came around, and they passed on us for that. Oh. And then it was I thought, well, that was that was fun. Now we'll go to law school. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, three months later, they came roaring back. This is 2012 with mm-hmm. Amazon, and of course, we didn't know about streaming TV, right? Back then, so I I just thought Amazon. Wow, what? That's scraping the bottom of the barrel. I had no idea. And then, of course, we ended up on the ground floor of this phenomenon. Then a couple of people sat me down and wagged their fingers at me and explained what Amazon streaming was. (laughs) (laughs) And then soon after we signed the deal, they were making the pilot in New York City. Wow. Wow. That, that, is, that is really incredible. You know, as I think about, you know, your story, you know, a, a very um, woman-centered and woman-centric story, I can't help but to think about what this would all have looked like post-Me Too. You know, when you were learning to play the oboe, when you were in New York, and even in the development of, of this book, it wasn't really the huge movement. It existed to an extent, but it wasn't the huge movement that it is today. I, I wonder if... if if, if you think about that reality, what if all of this had happened during or post hashtag Me Too? I don't think it would have been as authentic a story. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Uh, I, I'm sort of in a unique position of the sexual harassment stuff didn't really affect me that much because I think at the time, a lot of men and mentors, with the exception of my teacher, were really trying to go out of their way to to help and be appropriate um, and I knew how to handle myself. You know, if I was in a invited to somebody's hotel suite, I would not have gone, even if I'd lost the work. Um, and I'm not trying to blame victims here or anything, but, you know, it's a complicated issue. Mm. And I really didn't suffer that much from that kind of thing. And I think in music, you have to remember there's so many gay men as well that a lot of young men suffered from that, maybe even more than we did. Well, I mean, yeah. when the James Levine story came out, it was like, finally, because everybody knew it for decades. And when, um, you know, and, and as I, li- as I, again, as I listen to you, you talk about that, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the industry of classical music and how, you know, it can just, you know, uh, from being a woman to, you know, a member of the queer community or, or even someone who, um, you know, and, and the way they present themselves may benefit from all of the privileges of identity. You know, d- despite your background, classical music can really chew you up and, and, and spit you out in, in a really detrimental way. Do, do you still believe in the field of classical music? I'm, I, I, I don't know if you uh, know Lacolian Washington. He was my first uh, yes. bassoon teacher. Yeah, shout out to Lacolian. He once uh, told me when I, was in, uh, when I was an undergraduate that he doesn't suggest anyone 
major in performance and try to go into the field of classical music as a performer because it's so hard. But if someone is insistent upon it, like I was, you know, um, he he allows it. Is is entering the field as a performer something that you still believe in? That, that something that you would push a, a youngster toward? Uh, no, I would want somebody <laughs> to do whatever they want to do with music, but I certainly know that what has happened since my day has made it very clear that it's very difficult to do that and only that. That said, there are quite a few people out there who make a very good living and have a wonderful life as members of a major orchestra or a chamber group. Uh, other people can do some of that, like yourself, and also uh, go into something peripheral like that is equally important like uh, broadcasting, or in my case, writing the book and getting the message out, because now people are not scared to go to classical music as much as they were generally in the past. Uh, but I think in my time, there was the whole music explosion. It got started in 1956, and I was born in 1960, <laughs> 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 by this uh, Ford Foundation uh, scheme of matching grants, and to make a long story short, which is the long stories in the book, uh, they wanted to compete against Russia in the Cold War, and the only place we were falling behind was the arts. So they made up the system of matching grants. So if somebody donated $1,000 to an orchestra, they would match it. And then that started going under in the 70s. So orchestras and other arts organizations were accustomed to this extra money that was artificially inflated. And then when that went away, uh, things started tumbling. 1987 was when corporate uh, um, sponsorship of most arts organizations started to disappear. That's the year I went on a New York Philharmonic tour to South America, and the funding was disappearing, and a group of 15 of us went into the jungle and played Mozart in the jungle. Wow. <laughs> so the whole title is a double entendre. Mm. Well, what would be your advice to, you know, the sophomore or the junior in college now majoring in oboe performance? You know, what, what, obviously diversifying their experiences is necessary, but is there something more specific that you would tell that student? Absolutely. I think that getting a general academic education is just essential. And aside from that, you can attest to this, having really great uh, communication skills, writing, speaking. If you're afraid of public speaking, go to Toastmasters because you're going to have to get up in a concert and do it. Uh, get your tech skills up. So look, I'm an, I'm an AARP member and here I am with my own little studio <laughs> yeah, I saw your photo. It's impressive. <laughs> yeah, so I, I took, uh, I've been getting into voiceover, and uh, my teacher suggested you just get a quiet interior room with a bunch of pillows. Yeah, <laughs> there yeah. you go. There you go. Um, so, you know, I, I just had, you know, one, one more big question. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I think I shout out 
um, the Joe Button podcast a lot, but, you know, they're a hip hop podcast. And one of the things that they often explore is, is it easier now to like get on and, and get into the industry or was it easier back then? And I think about that all the time in classical music. D- do you think winning that audition, you know, considering that there are so many full time orchestras these days, do you think winning that audition is something that's easier now or that may have been easier for musicians of our caliber, you know, back in the late 70s and 80s? I think it's much harder now. Wow. Just people's skills. If you listen to, say, old Philadelphia Orchestra 78 RPM records, some of the technical skills of the woodwind players, not that great. You said it, not and me. And I <laughs> hate to say it, even Marcel Tabito. But, you know, we, we learn new things. The instruments get better. And I just, I think it's much more difficult to get an orchestra job today. But once you do, it's, and get past tenure, it's a wonderful thing. You know, you get to go somewhere amazing every summer and play this great music and earn a decent living. Mm. And then if you're like me, you, uh, you uh, throw it all away to get on the radio. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, look what I did. I get, if I had gone to Columbia Journalism School, stayed in New York, I'd probably still have a Broadway show and not be worrying about income mm. ever. <laughs> you know, um, before we sign off here, Blair, uh, you we were talking about Sam Bergman, and you said you had something to say. I want to loop back oh, around yeah. to Sam Bergman. Well, he he was very nice, and he handled this really well. But I was sort of obsessing, which nobody writes a book should ever do, about what people say about you online. And he had had a blog where he uh, said I had written something horrible about the Minnesota Orchestra. So I went back through all my files. I'm like, I can't. I never wrote anything about the Minnesota Orchestra. So I got back to him, and it turned out to be somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) But I was just like the, you know, I was the pinata back then. Yeah. You know, anything's wrong with classical music, it's Blair. (laughs) (laughs) She's the one. She wrote the book. (laughs) But he was really nice, and he, he was very apologetic, and, you know, I can see how that happens. Sure. Yeah. yeah shout out to guy. Sam. Yeah. So uh, where can <laughs> so so for folks who have yet to read Mozart in the uh, Jungle or to see the TV adaptation, how how can they how can they do that? Well, the book's available on Amazon. Uh, it's also there's a wonderful audiobook version, and also uh, it's on Kindle. And then the TV show, you can watch the pilot for free, no matter what. You go to Amazon.com and just put in Mozart in the Jungle. The uh, book will come up. The show will come up. Oh, okay. And the, I, I absolutely love the show. Yeah, and 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 we love you. You know, musician, uh, journalist, author, um, a, a part-time uh, actor, as as you've told us. <laughs> but, Voice actor. On occasion. Yeah, Blair, Blair Tindall. They... Yeah, so so such a pleasure to have you in today. Oh, thank you so much. I look forward to listening to this. Sex, drugs, and classical music. What did you think, Scott? Together at last. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've always been together, as Blair has said. Yeah, but we need to talk about it more 
Yeah, yeah. Frankly. So um, as we kind of went into uh, in the prelude of this opus, um, you know, as you're practicing your social distancing and making sure that you're staying sanitary and safe at home, take this uh, as your opportunity uh, to go explore the story of Blair and and uh, her perspective on, you know, the trillness of uh, classical music and uh, classical musicians. So um, as we also outlined in the prelude uh, for this opus of Triloquy for Women's History Month, we're featuring uh, bassoonist Joe. Joanne Sukumaran, a bassoonist um, and a Triloquy listener from all the way in Singapore. She recently put out an album called The Night Garden that you can find uh, everywhere uh, you get your music. And uh, this is the title track from that album. So I hope that you uh, enjoy this performance and I hope you'll join us for the next opus of Triloquy. Be sure to stay safe out there. Be well. Thank you. 